Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, pregnancy-focused chiropractor, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today had a very challenging road to parenthood, a journey, though, that helped her learn to let go of control and embrace radical gratitude. She has authored Joy Hunter, a raw memoir about her journey through love, loss, and discovery. Alexis Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a part. You nailed it. Thank what you a great intro. Nailed it. Okay, so you have, like, I just met you, if we're going to be honest, a few minutes ago, and you have incredible energy, and, like, the positivity is exploding through the electronic devices, and I know you had a very, very, very challenging road, and I did too with my wife, not the same as yours, but very difficult fertility journey, and I don't know, I think it knocked us down, at least for a while, and we're, like, the most miserable people to be around, and we've come from there. But not like you. So I want to find out, you know, like when Harry met Sally, I'll have what she's having. I got to find out how you got to be you. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from originally? I grew up in Austin, Texas. What was that like? And why don't you have an accent? Uh, Austin's a pretty big town, I think. My mom's originally from Oregon. So yeah, I lost the accent. I don't know if I ever had one, actually. People would always say that to me. When I was in high school, they'd be like, wait, you're from Texas, but you don't sound like you would draw. And I would say, you know, if I have a couple whiskeys, it's different. And then it starts coming out and it's a lot slower. And it's like, uh, y'all. So it's in there. Eight, nine, ten, y'all. Eight, uh, nine, ten, y'all. Oh, my God. It's good. But you do have the big Texas energy. I do. And I have the big Texas hair. I've like, obviously, you can see me, but I've tamed it with the braid. But yes, oh. I definitely perpetuate the stereotype that women in Texas have enormous hair that it makes us closer to God. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Good to know. So Austin, no real draw unless you're drunk or pissed. And exactly. Uh, and then where do you go from there? I grew up in Westlake, which was a very wealthy community, which is part of the context, I think, of this story. And I grew up on the other side of the tracks. So I grew up in a little place called Cuernavaca, which was inside of Westlake. But I was proximate to success and to wealth and to privilege. So I think it built part of that drive inside of me that was insatiable. Did my undergrad and master's at USC. I studied undergrad was international relations in Spanish and communication management for my master's. I always thought I'd get into politics. My grandpa was this incredible judge in Texas, and it was kind of between him and LBJ for who got the tap to run for president. So we had like really deep political roots in Texas. And so part of me feels like I was always, you know, kind of being reared to be this Texas politician. So I went out to school thinking I would learn the world of politics and I would come back home like a good girl and I would check all the boxes and do all the things. And right out of grad school, I started a company called I Am That Girl, which is basically a badass version of Girl Scouts for college girls. And I did that for a long time, for about a decade. I was on the road preaching and talking and inspiring young women for living. How did that come to be? Great question. I sat down with a group of girls my sophomore year. And we have a lot of conversations about things that don't matter, clothes and boys and movies and all sorts of fun things. But what if once a week we had conversations about things that did matter? Would that interest you? And would you come? In the first meeting, six girls showed up. And six meetings later, we had 347 girls showing up. And that was kind of when it was born. It, It was just this idea of like, 
wow, there's this real depth, especially to young women on college campuses that we want to talk about the hard things. And there really wasn't a space where we were allowed to do that. And I kind of assumed maybe that we weren't the only college campus in the country that was interested in doing that. And then kind of at the height of I Am That Girl, we had 1.2 million girls. And I think we were in 27 countries. And it was girls, young women coming together every week, talking about important topics like anxiety and depression and boundaries and sexual assault prevention and you name it. I mean, it's kind of like real life one-on-one classes, the stuff that we weren't getting classes in growing up. So it was incredibly inspiring to be in a sea full of young women, all hungry and passionate about wanting to make a difference in the world and not really knowing where to start. And probably most honestly, just really wanting to make a difference in our own world and that being a good place, at least to have the conversations. Well, so you hit the ground running. Yes. That's why I said there's context. There is context. Hit the ground running, making a difference. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, have a great idea like that and have uh, six people at the first meeting and six people at the 10th meeting. So it doesn't happen by itself. It's overcoming that resistance, building momentum. It doesn't happen by itself. So congratulations on that. And that was just the beginning. Although I would have rather vote for you for president. (laughs) Well, I'm never say never. But not at the moment. Just I'm telling you right now, you have my vote. Amazing. (sighs) Okay, fine. So you did that. And what do you do now? Yeah, now I actually am in conversations with a company called Girlology about teaming up. And they are two really badass female doctors who are doing incredible work in the space of health and wellness and kind of merging these two communities together to better serve girls. So certainly continuing to hopefully inspire, empower, and provide tools and resources for women. But I'm also taking care of a precious little baby boy that I was not sure would ever be in my future. So I have the privilege of also getting to be a mom. You're going to make me emotional. We haven't even started. So yeah, those are my two biggest roles right now. Which is more challenging, taking care of 1.2 million women or one little boy? hands down one little boy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the boss when it comes to him. That's the difference. He's the boss. Yeah. So, you know, in work, I can be the boss and I can talk to other adults in using, you know, communicating effectively with him. I'm like, whatever you want. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get to the beginning of that journey. Was being a mom something you always considered, wanted? No. And I think that for some reason, I always had a lot of shame about answering that question, honestly. But I think that I was so career driven. I had such a vision for the life in the world and how I wanted to impact it that I was always kind of on the fence. And I actually made me feel like something was broken in me because I think I envied people who were certain that they wanted to be parents, like my husband, who is a 6'9 poster boy feminism. And he's the kind of guy that, and I've known him since we were nine years old, we grew up together. And he's the guy who's like his whole life, he's known he's wanted to be a dad. And I envied just as much my friends who knew without a shadow of a doubt that they absolutely didn't want to be parents. And I was just in kind of this like abyss in the middle where I was like, I don't know. And how do you know? And, you know, is it, when is that answer going to solidify? So I think it really wasn't until we had our first miscarriage that I think it was in that moment, maybe that I had imagined a world in which I was going to be a mom. And then all of a sudden that was taken away. 
And I think that was when it really dawned on me that this was a shared dream that I wasn't, I, I joke with my husband that, you know, at a certain point was like, you know, I'm doing this for you. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ridiculous. Like the amount of things I put my body through and I'm like, good God, there's no yeah. way you can quote unquote do that for someone else. But yeah, I think it took me a minute to realize and probably took me losing a baby to realize how much I actually wanted one. Was the fact that you were pregnant, meaning you were still on the fence, but going for it? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. So I guess this train ends with the baby, you know? So at the time I was like, yeah, okay, rock and roll. We're doing this. But I so also- was that okay. not a planned pregnancy? Oh yeah, that was planned. We had tried for years and then we ended up doing IVF. So that was mega okay. planned. Yeah. Let me back up a little bit. Nine yeah. years old, you meet this guy who eventually turns six, nine. Yeah. Yeah, Jeez. six nine. I usually say Moses, but Jesus, that is yeah. tall. But you didn't get married at nine. How did that relationship turn into this relationship? So I was a great older, and as anyone knows, an older gal, he gives me a hard time that you know I was fixated on older boys, which I was. So yeah. when I did my undergrad and master's at USC, I didn't see him for almost 10 years. And he played basketball at University of Texas, hence the hype. And mm -hmm. I remember when they were in the final four. I remember seeing him in a bar when I was in LA, I was in a sports bar because I grew up with four older brothers. So I'm like a huge sports junkie. And I remember being like, man, good for him. You know, cause it like zoomed in and it was like Brad Buckman with 22 points. And I just remember who, whatever guy I was sitting next to on the stool, I was like, man, good for him. And the guy looked at me and he was like, oh, do you know him? And I said, yeah, I grew up with him. And he might be the kindest person that I've ever met. And that was like the only sentiment that I had about him. And I hadn't seen him mm -hmm. in years. I wouldn't see him for another four years, I think. So 10 years after I graduated high school, I came home, my dad was battling cancer. And I walked into a local bar in Austin and ran into him. And within I don't know, I mean, it's kind of a cheesy, like obnoxiously gross love story, because he ends up walking up and chatting and asking me out. And then on our first date, he doesn't even make it like 10 minutes in. And he was like, okay, I have a confession. And I was like, oh God, where are we going with this? At this point, he was a professional athlete, professional basketball player. And he was like, I'm not going to lie. I've been in love with you since we were 10 years old. So even if I don't get a second date, uh, he was like, I'm living out every little boy's dream of like being on a date with the person that they were like in love with in high school. So yeah, it was yeah. really like, Gee. yeah, the kind of stuff you can't make up. So he continues. I tell everyone, I'm like, marry the person who's been in love with you forever because you can do no wrong. Because uh, to this day, he's like, I got to pinch myself. I can't believe I'm married to Alexis Jones. So yeah, he's that's uh, so sweet. Alexis, how tall are you? I'm almost 5'10". Oh, so you're also tall. Yeah. Yeah, we're tall. We're tall people. We're big Texans. We're big. Texans. Everything's big yeah. in Texas. Everything's big in Texas. All right. So if I can recap, you were born politics, Texas, uh, over there, Westlake, then international affairs at USC, and then 1.2 million young women rallying them, empowering them, and then meeting up with your childhood buddy and mm -hmm. uh, finding out he's had a crush on you ever since, and then marrying him, and then we're going to take a break and come back and find out what happened next.
I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive-prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 Plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either Omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code Code 3Berlin, the number 3Berlin at thisisneeded.com. Put three omega-3s in your cart. Use the code number 3Berlin at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. Wow. Welcome back. We're talking to Joy Hunter, Alexis Jones. Uh, You sound like Crocodile Hunter for Happy Things. Yeah. I've never heard that before, but I want to like make that my new tagline. Thank you very much. I'm glad I can yeah. help. So here we are. Everything's going blissfully fine. You're not quite sure you want to be a parent, but the very tall husband does. Yeah. He's like, I want in. So then did you collectively decide, hey, let's go for it? Yeah. I said, okay. Like, yeah, let, you know, let's try. And so we did that for a couple of years. Then like anyone who's ever been on the trail of, infertility of like slowly discovering that something is not working and i'm that type a right who is used to getting done so i said let's do this and then immediately amazon's like ovulation strips that i could pee on because i was like if we're gonna do this we're gonna you know and i just assumed we'd get pregnant immediately and that didn't happen for about a year and then two years and then we finally met with a fertility clinic in austin and found out that i had significantly low egg count and low egg quality was, uh. and it was actually one of those moments where my husband, they call him cause they, you know, they did all the tested, all his sperm and they called and they were like, my God, sir. I mean, we've never seen this before, but you have four times the amount of healthy. And I just remember him like fist bumping and being like, yes. And then looking at me and being like, oh no, oh my God, I, I'm so sorry, babe. And I was like, it's yeah, what? I mean, fault. that it's must feel pretty crappy. Yeah, especially when you are accustomed and you have an identity as someone who gets things done and someone who is capable. So I just went to work. I mean, I just went to every single book I could find, every single podcast, every single TED talk. Like I just started doing every single thing, uh, took out <laughs> alcohol, <laughs> stopped drinking caffeine, stopped doing sugar. I was just like every single thing oh. in my control that wow. I can do, everything that makes life wonderful. 
that I'm going to take out of my life. That must and, be when you um, lost your accent. Exactly. And then I lost my accent. <laughs> so yeah, I did that for about two years. And then when I uh, got the diagnosis of low egg count, low egg quality, which was shocking to me, because at the time I was only 34, 35. So if anything, my fertility doctor thought I was being impatient and kind of jumping the gun. He was like, the majority of my clients are 39. You're actually, you know, considered a young buck ah. um, here. And so we did our first round of IVF. And I think I just assumed like, oh, okay, we just need a little support. So where were you living then? I was living in Austin. My husband had retired from basketball and we'd moved back to our hometown in Austin. So when we did the egg retrieval, we only got two eggs and that was shocking and disappointing. And then only one made it to a blastus. And then we did a fresh transfer with the only one that we had. And we got that phone call. Congratulations. You're pregnant. And after years of trying, I was like, we did it. Okay. And I think for me, the expectations, I think I just assumed truly that like, well, of course this is going to work because I live in America. And when we buy things, when we spend money, we get things in return. And so I was like, we just spent so much money and idea. Of course, this is going to work. Just that mentality of transaction, I think. I applied to this situation, which as anyone knows, it's not applicable. No. No. And Especially so, in this situation. You could, you could spend endlessly. Endless. Come endless. home empty. Yep. Um, and that is a very unique thing about this situation is that exact point. That there is never a guarantee. And if there's anything that I'm really conscious of, because throughout our entire process, people would be like, I just know that one day you're going to be a parent. And I'd be like, but you can't possibly... like." No one knows, like, and no one's guaranteed anything in this wild journey. So we ended up losing the baby within the first trimester, but losing the baby long enough in that everyone around us had brought us gifts. And our oh, lawyer was like no. filled with like, congratulations, God oh. is good. We knew it was going to happen for y'all. And everyone is just so blissful because as someone loving someone on the journey of fertility. You're just so, you're just rooting so hard. And our mutual friend, Danielle, I remember her calling and just bawling and being like, babe, I knew it would have, I love you so much. And at the time she was pregnant with her second. So I was like, we're having babies together. Like, this is amazing. Uh, yeah. So it was, of course, soul crushing. It's like a, that a didn't work out. Dagger in the soul. And then mm. all these other things just turn the dagger and make it worse. Having the presence, having people know, having a friend who's pregnant at the same time, and uh, and also having nothing left. You had nobody in the freezer. Nothing. You nothing. Everything it, lost. And that's what it feels like is that uh, Candyland, that like go back to start, go back to start. Oh. Like every time you're just like, ugh. But like sales cycle, right? Like the cycle of us, like getting to this point is so hard and so long and so expensive. So you're just like throwing all of your heart and all of your money, which I feel like people never talk about this, but it's like somehow taboo to be like, it's so expensive. And that's creating an entire other stress for so a family. Is it you're like, oh my God, do we gamble again? Do we try this again? So yeah, for us, like you said, it was not only heartbreaking that we had been trying for years that we finally got pregnant, but it rattled as someone who grew up in the church my whole life and my dad led my youth group and was someone who really felt a deep, deep connection to the God of my understanding. 
And I will say that of every experience in my life was the most rattling to the foundation, like the fabric by which my life has been strewn, like the tapestry, the actual threads making up the tapestry of my life. It rattled me to my core of like, what kind of God gives something to someone that is their heart's desire, everything they've been working for for years only to take it away. And I remember thinking in the moment how cruel it felt. And like you said, the rest of the world doesn't stop spinning. So here I am getting to watch my best friend, you know, continue on with her pregnancy. And another one of my closest friends were actually the godparents of her daughter. You know, she comes to me and it's like, by the way, sorry, but I'm pregnant. And then she's been trying like a month and a half. And I just remember like getting up from the table and being like, one second, because we were at a restaurant and like walking in the bathroom and just bawling my eyes out and then coming back to the table and being like, you know what? Here's the deal. There are two things that can be true at the same time. I am overjoyed for you. I am so excited that this is your reality, that this dream is happening for you. And I am so sad and devastated for us. And both of those things are true. So like they're you said, both true, it was but like, their joy shines a surgical grade spotlight on your yeah. sadness. And I really love how you said that because I know we felt that when we were pregnant and we had miscarriages and our friends who were pregnant at the same time, just going through the milestones, oh, 20, oh, 20 weeks, or she's wild, look at she's showing, or they're looking at strollers or, you know, uh, oh, she's almost yeah. due, she had the baby and they're having the bris or whatever it is. And yep. know, each one is just like more of a spotlight on our sadness and you do feel joy for them. And then you feel guilt because yep. the joy that you feel for them is shrouded and twisted in with your own sadness and you can't be fully happy for them in the way that you want to and then you feel like a yeah. terrible person i don't know if you did but that's how i felt yeah uh, no of course and, and like uh, i remember there was like one time and i'm always like want to always give people permission that like nine out of ten times i could muster up the courage and show up to the baby showers when everybody is looking at me being like oh my god is she okay like everyone is doing the thing where they're like staring at you being like hey girl so what else is going to like the total pink elephant in the room, nine out of 10 times I could show up and put on a brave face. And I always tell people, give yourself permission for the times where you just don't have it in you. And I remember a really dear friend. I remember calling her and being like, I love you. I'm so excited for you. I cannot come to your baby shower today. Like I just don't have it. And like you said, there are moments where I remember my little sister, my stepsister, who is one of my favorite humans in the entire world. And I remember she was like on baby three. And I was like, you have three toys and I have no toys. Can I have your third? Like you've already had two, you know, and just being like, what? The actual, like, oh God. Yeah. And that was one of those times where my dad called and was like, hey, just a heads up, like, Jesse's pregnant again. And I do remember being like throwing my phone and then eventually picking my phone and being like, okay, dad, thanks for the heads up. I'll make sure to call her and say congratulations. But mm. yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard. It's our human nature to see all the other kids in the classroom getting ice cream cones and you not getting one and you not understanding why. Mm. I mean, anyone would say like, no, of course that's cruel. No one would do that to a child. No. It's so different. Like the kid inside of us is saying like, not only is this not fair, but in my situation, I think I was also dealing with all the feelings of like, what's wrong with me? I'm the problem. It's my fault. And of course, having a very real moment in therapy with my husband, where 
I ended up breaking down and saying like, you didn't sign up for this. Like you signed up to have kids. I've known that from day one, like this isn't fair for you. And if for any reason you don't want to be with me and you want to find a partner, I mean, I think that was maybe even like my deeper, deepest fear was, oh my goodness, what if my best friend in the entire world that is also my husband chooses to leave? And of course, in the moment, he said all the things that you would ever want anyone to say, which is like, what? In what world? You are my person and I love you. And like, he's like, I swear movies are like scripted after this man. <clears throat> but yeah, said all the things that you would ever want to hear in that moment, which is I chose you and you're enough. And if what? we never have children, you're enough. And I mean, just even get a sliver of the emotion that made you say that, you yeah. know, that to come up and say, like, I am an utter failure. I can't provide you what you deserve, what you want, what you need. Yeah. What that must feel like, the rot that must feel like on the inside, I can't begin to relate. And what it must have felt like for him to come back and reassure you that, no, you're it. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who sadly did a lot of fertility treatment and then had triplets. And then, oh. <laughs> but after she had the triplets, she had an injury from the birth that left her in a vegetative state and her kids are now 17 years old. But I remember after it happened and we didn't know if she was going to recover or not recover. She was a very close friend of mine too. She was a patient and a very close friend. We went to chiropractic school together and her husband, I've spent many hours with him where he was just crying saying, you can have all three kids back. I just want oh. Abby back. And, you know, for you to be able to see that and hear that from your husband, like you're yeah. what matters to me. Yeah. As much as I want kids, you're what matters. And so uh, I'm getting a little emotional. So let's move on. So yeah. I don't like being in touch with my feelings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, so, as you do like an amazing podcast around uh, fertility. No, 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 you're not a feelings guy. I get it. No, it's it. for you to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, feelings. yeah, of course. <laughs> don't turn the tables on me so all right that didn't work out and then you had nobody in the freezer you spent a lot of money oh i mean so then where do you go from there yeah i think the other thing that came up in therapy was my mom was a single mom with five kids and she worked two jobs and went to night school while raising all of us and no one from her family ever graduated high school much less college and she put all five of her kids through undergrad grad school and or law school so the reason that I share this is that like I was raised by like a thoroughbred as far as being capable and getting things done and never making excuses for anything was I just by osmosis, I just saw this indelible, resilient work ethic. And the reason I bring that up is the other really pivotal moment in therapy with my husband was that our therapist looked at Brad and said, you need to tell her that she's done enough. And I remember in the moment kind of being like, wait, what? And she said, you need to look her in the eyes right now. You need to tell her that she's done enough and that she can stop. And I just remember getting really emotional. And he looked at me and he was like, oh my God, of course. Like not only, and we just had the moment of like, oh my God, I love you and you're enough. And like, I don't care. I don't need, like you're who I choose in this lifetime. And then he looked at me and he was like, well, yeah, babe, of course, like, of course you've done enough and you can stop now. And I mean, when I say I lost it, I didn't even know that I needed to hear that because with that work ethic and that drive that had, like you said, hit the ground running, right? My whole life was like this insatiable hunger. Nothing was ever good enough. And in that moment being told, like you've been doing this for years, the things that you have put your body through, 
you know, on behalf of making our dream come true. I didn't even know that I needed permission to stop. And that was like, looking back, one of the greatest gifts he ever offered me was just like an out, you know, like white flag, you're good, you've done enough. Because I remember thinking like, I'll do a hundred more rounds. I'll do whatever it takes. And that was some of the most generous grace he offered me in that moment was the idea that if we wanted to stop there, that he was completely okay with that. That's so powerful. I don't know if I ever would have thought of that. Okay. Well, you do have a kid. I do have a kid. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I know. And, it, and uh, I'm like, spoiler alert. And by the way, the whole time I'm like hearing in the background, I'm like, is my, like, is he crying? What's happening back there? My oh, well, it seems like after you did your IVF, after you got pregnant with the one embryo you had, and then had a miscarriage and felt all the lows that you realized, I want to be a mom. Yeah. And is very curious about the journey from that moment to where you are right now. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get the rest of that story. <laughs> Welcome back. We are talking to Alexis Jones, Joy Hunter got to check out this book i mean your energy i bet comes through the pages of that book and i, I hope bet so. an extremely fast read okay so we got to where we were you finally got pregnant joy of all joys miscarriage uh, depths of all sadness what happened next in your fertility journey yeah so everything went terribly wrong all at the same time COVID happened so we had just gotten pregnant just lost the baby early early COVID. i had 150 events on the calendar for 2020, all 150 events got canceled oh my. Uh, in two weeks. So my entire income went to zero. I went on unemployment and I had been doing a speaking tour with Glenn and Doyle and Abby Wambach and Ancestry.com was our biggest corporate sponsor. So we were all doing the TV show to do press for the speaking tour and uh, not so little life curveball. Uh, I found out that my dad who raised me, who is my real life superhero, who has coached everything I ever played, that he was in fact, not my biological father. That was a little family secret revealed. And at the time, my mom asked me not to tell my dad. And I tried to keep that secret, but my dad and I were so close and they got divorced when I was a baby but they were exceptional co-parents. So like every single soccer game, every volleyball game, every, you name it, they were like front center sitting next to each other, really good friends. And so at the time my mom was like, he's never going to forgive me. Please don't tell him. And please don't tell your four older brothers. I mean, what was it like for you the minute you figured that out? Oh gosh, it was two bombs. It was not only is your dad, not your biological father, but the man who is, is a hundred percent Mexican. So it was also an introduction of an entire new race into yeah. my life, thinking that I was Caucasian. Although what's interesting, which I talk about in my book, is that from the time that I was seven or eight years old, second or third grade, I've kept a journal my whole life. The one consistent phrase throughout all of my journals was, I know that I'm being lied to. I just don't know what it's about. Oh, wow. What so deep. for my whole life, had kind of known that there was like something and there were like some family jokes that like Willie Nelson, this country singer that like he was my dad, like there were just kind of these weird jokes in the family. 
So found out that my dad was not my biological father, that I was actually Hispanic, that I was 50% Mexican and tried to keep the secret from my dad until I was just bursting at the seams. And of course, my mother has since said, and my mother's my best friend in the whole world, which made all of this even more complicated because here I am completely, my world's turned upside down, but she's my best friend. And so I'm also trying to protect her. And finally, I just come clean and I say, mom, I have to tell dad. Like, it just feels like there's this huge secret between us now. And so I go to tell my dad. And then the real family secret is revealed when he says, I've actually always known. And I said, what? Right. So now I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, your mom and I was like tail end of a dying marriage. We were like living in the same house, but we were separated. He said, when you were born, I was at the hospital and I asked your mom, is she mine? And your mom kind of like didn't really answer and looked away, but the nurse handed you to me. He said, and in that moment, Alexis, I chose you. And that was so huge that he didn't just show up. He wasn't a casual dad. Anyone who knows Mark Jones, anyone who knows me knows that my dad is poster boy of the possibilities of fatherhood. And to realize that that was a voluntary choice, that his love for me was a choice, was not out of obligation, was not out of duty, was because he made a decision. And in that moment, and at this point, you know, we're years into our journey, we've had our miscarriage. I'm contemplating our, how are we going to move forward? We just talked about the fact that we're back to start. And he said, just so you know, parenthood has nothing to do with biology. It has nothing to do with the fact that you and I don't share the same genes. Parenthood is making a relentless commitment to show up and love a tiny human every single day. And especially the days that you don't feel like it. Mm. And just gave this like radical speech of what love is. And I remember having a moment where I was like, I want that. I always said growing up because, you know, part of my work ethic was because I grew up in this really wealthy neighborhood and I wasn't wealthy. So I had a chip on my shoulder. And so I was like, you just wait, I'm going to go make something of myself. And I'm going to, you know, what it's so funny because you're like, what am I going to do? Come back to my, my high school halls and like walk around. But, you know, this ass kicker in me my whole life and Yet in that moment, what I realized was like the thing that I wanted most in the whole world was to like share this love because I told everyone growing up my whole life, we may not have had a lot of money, but I'm a billionaire in love. And I would always say that like, I just, and I know my parents are divorced, but like, they're amazing. I have these four older brothers and my steps are like, I just have this amazing, like plethora, like superfluous overflow of love in my life. And I remember that was like the really defining moment where in that moment I made the decision, I actually don't care how I become a mom. It doesn't matter. The biology doesn't matter. And at that point we've been trying so hard, you know, to make my eggs and Brad's sperm and like, you know, this baby that was like the makeup of both of us. And in that moment I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. And we would eventually get an egg donor which is how my son was conceived. And I was fortunate enough to be able to carry him, which was wild and awesome and so hard and everything in between. But in that moment, I knew that it didn't matter whether we adopted, whether we fostered, whether we got an egg donor, whether we miraculously got pregnant naturally, because I had been the recipient of that volume of love. And I knew instantaneously that I was capable of doing the same. So that was when I let go of the how. That must also be a big, I mean, that just opens up so many more doors for you. Every door, every door was open. Didn't matter. And by the way, is there a young person out there in the world in our lives 
that needs love and support, we'll take them. Like, I just remember being like, I'll take a kid, like any kid anywhere. Like, does a kid need a home? We'll take them. Because I don't know, like you said, it just opened, it flooded me with both the certainty in that moment that I was going to be a mother and the how no longer mattered. And I don't think I'd realized how attached I was to the how. So I knew with certainty that that was happening some way or another. And I also knew that the privilege it would be to love whatever child found their way into our home. I want to be a love billionaire. Yeah. What's that song? I want to be a love billionaire. So I don't think it's love billionaire, but I think we should change the lyrics and make it love. Billionaire. That's what I'm saying. I'm making it. I'm making it. So, mm-hmm. love, so love and bad. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so back to you. <laughs> There's a million questions. There has to be a second episode to be <laughs> a fly on the wall. Like I'm trying to picture it and just to be a fly on the wall. When you found out that your dad is not your biological dad. Yeah. When you talked to your mother about it and approached her and went for that, like the emotions are so big. My heart is beating a million times a minute just thinking about what that would be like. Mm-hmm. And then going to your dad to tell him what that would be like. And then finding out that he already knew to be a fly in the wall. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine those experiences. So in the end, you had a donor and that process yeah. of picking a donor egg could be a whole episode. A whole episode. Which, by the way, it was during COVID. So people, you know, my girlfriends, because I have a sick, sarcastic sense of humor. It's how I've gotten through everything and a very dark sense of humor. And so my girlfriends would be like, you know, it's just so hard trying to date during COVID. And I was like, you know what's worse? Trying to find a baby mama to reproduce with your husband. And they'd be like, oh, oh." and I'd be like, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, you know. Sort of. Yeah, exactly. You swiping right, you swiping left, tell me all the things. But it felt, <laughs> it felt like a very similar process. And I will say that infertility was one level of isolation. Of It felt hard to relate to a lot of people in my life who had never experienced that. And then when we did the IVF route, that was another level of isolation, certainly a miscarriage. And I think that those are more common across the board. But when we then had to dive into the deep end of quote unquote egg donor, I did not know a single person in my life who had ever gone down that journey. And that felt unbelievably isolating for us. There was literally no one to relate to for me as I'm I'm, like hiring agencies to help me. Like I'm in a portal looking at all of these women and watching their videos and reading. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm online dating for a baby mama. And I remember at one point I looked at Brad and I was like, what about this one? He was like, nope, this is a trap. Nope. No opinion. Yeah. He's like, you're choosing. Yeah. So that was an entire experience that was hard and confronting. That should and could be an entire episode by itself. But once you got past that, you picked Mm -hmm. and do you get multiple eggs? Yeah. So you get one full cycle. And again, this is another. So now we've, I think, three X financially of what we've paid for IBF for an egg donor. And we were hoping, and like you said, this is an entire episode of so many things that I learned on that journey. But yes, we got an entire cycle. We ended up getting 19 eggs. So we were super excited. Costco. And exactly. That's what I felt like. (laughs) And then it turned out only 11 of them were mature eggs. And then when we combined them with Brad's sperm, only five made it to a blastus. And then we sent them off for genetic testing and we only got two embryos back. And so that again was just like, how are we back to the number two? (laughs) And then there was actually a bit of a curveball where I was told there was a moment where I thought I wouldn't be able to carry. So then we courted 
a surrogate, which was oh a whole God. other thing. For nine months, we courted a surrogate. And then we actually found a second opinion who thought I was a good candidate. Because at that point, you know, we're four years in at that point, all of our life savings. And at that point, we only had two embryos. So I was like, whatever's the best vehicle. And if I am not the best vehicle, then this isn't about ego. This is just about like, we want a baby. So thank God that surrogate fell through and we got a second opinion. And that doctor said, nope, I actually think you're an excellent candidate for X, Y, and Z. And so we did the transfer and it felt so strange. And you'd mentioned a young woman before who's pregnant after loss and was like, can I listen to an episode that's happy? <laughs> you know, because I don't even think we told friends and family until I was six months pregnant. Like I was straight up hiding it. I mean, because I was like, oh, hell no. Am I dealing with anyone's disappointment? Like, not only can I not hold the weight of their hope for me, but like, heaven forbid this goes south. I don't survive like another loss and especially the weight of other people's expectations. So we were like very quiet about it. And this is where I was like, oh, God is clearly a woman because zero through eight months, my pregnancy was like blissful. There was no nausea. I was still working out six days a week. I had you know, good energy, all the things. And then two months before my son was due, my husband headed out for his last hurrah to Cabo to go play golf with his best buds. And I texted him from the plane and said, you should probably call me when you land. My water broke two months early. Whoa. And then I was like, wait, what? I felt so entitled to an easy pregnancy and an easy delivery. And my water broke. I moved into the hospital for a couple weeks. I was on bed rest, of course. And then eventually it ends in an emergency C-section. And my son goes to the NICU for two to three weeks. And then he comes home on oxygen for two to three weeks. And you would not believe this. When you look at this chunky monkey who's now eight months old and our egg donor is almost six feet tall. My husband is six, nine. And, you know, my son Ninja kicked out of his little water bubble because he was so excited to come into the world. So now I look at this eight month old. I mean, he's like this beautiful, healthy, enormous already. Like not only is he caught up, he's like, you know, we knew he was going to be a monster, right? We knew he was going to be a beast, but the journey, my God, the journey just to get to the starting line. The number of times that I took an unexpected gasp in your story is unprecedented. I mean, wow. Everything you went through, everything you went through. I mean, it's sort of breathtaking. It's hard to process all the different things you've been through. And again, just such a beautiful love of life and passion for life on your face and your expressions and your voice and in the work that you do. So we could do five more episodes, but wrap (laughs) this one up. Yeah, of course. Tell me about the book, because these life experiences are obviously what kind of crafted, you know, you and your story in this memoir. Yeah, the book really covers, especially in detail, which is the story arc about my father and like that love and about really reframing what it means to be a parent. It captures the journey of, I tell everyone that everything sometimes has to go terribly wrong so that it can eventually go terribly right. So that journey is a wild journey of me and I hop in a car with my husband on the other side of our miscarriage, our best friend who was heartbroken for totally different reasons. And we do this month long cross country RV trip. And so a lot of that is like the discovery of healing and 
Yeah, just creating a space for all the broken pieces to be picked up. And it's never the way that it started out. But I can honestly say on the other side of all of this, that it's more beautiful. And the biggest takeaway I had was two things. One, that there's always, and if there's anyone listening to this, this is like the one thing I want them to hear, that there's always purpose to our pain and that time is the only revealer. And when I look back at the life we were living, it was a divine intervention for me that I can see that now with 2020. You know, I was on the trajectory of running for office in Texas. Like there were all these things that were out of alignment with really the life that I wanted to live. And on our RV trip, we ended up stumbling upon Bozeman, Montana, which if you would have ever told me that my husband and I, like fifth generation Texans would now, I am like calling you from Bozeman, Montana. We moved to Montana, which like my parents, nobody understood, but there was purpose to all of that. And the other piece is that even in our darkest of darkest moments, there are glimmers of joy that still exist and that we have to fight to see them. And sometimes in my darkest of darkest moments, and I know we can talk about how wild the world is right now, that there are moments where walking outside just to check the mail and I would feel the sunshine like come across my face and it would warm my face for those like 30 seconds. And I'd be like, okay, this was my moment of joy today. It was that small, that tiny, almost insignificant. And like, those are the moments that saved my life in the darkness because I could slowly start collecting them. And eventually when I could finally see the light at the end of the tunnel and I actually end the book, we still didn't know how we were going to get pregnant. And that's the wild thing is that I end the book being like, I have no idea. I don't know, but every single door is open and I'm open to however it's going to unfold. Uh, and, you know, so, so of course my publisher is like, how about the next book? The sequel. The yes. I was just book. thinking about that. Yeah. I even um, have a title for it. Oh, what is it? Tell me. Terribly right. Terribly right. I gotta write that down. Alexis Jones. And you still have uh embryo in the freezer? One more embryo. Yeah. By the way, my husband like casually was like, Hey babe, what about the, <laughs> what about, what about round two? And I was like, bro, we are eight months out. I'm going to need a minute. And he was like, yeah, yeah, like, what do you think? Like four more months? I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, we're going to do this again, aren't we? And he's like, yeah, I think, I think so. And oh. I mean, that's what's insane. Five well, that's a trilogy. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to give it another whirl. Amazing. Oh my gosh. I have to tell you something right after this. But in the meantime, yeah. a few things. One is just a friend of mine did uh, IVF made embryos and had one of them as a baby. And then she had three more in the freezer. And she kept telling me, she just kept saying it as like, oh yeah, I got three in the freezer, three in the freezer. And then one day I was there and she offered me a Klondike bar. And I'm like, no way. I'm not eating anything from your freezer. <laughs> I don't want to know. I'm not even opening your freezer. <laughs> There's nothing I would do for that Klondike bar. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> there's that and then terribly right hopefully it's your next thing alexis jones you have inspired me so much you have shifted my paradigm on what's important in life right here in this one hour and you have really helped me i hope i know your energy and presence is going to be there when we all do we have darker times and lighter times in my, my next uh, dark moment i hope i can cling on to the passion and wisdom and love billionaires that you have shared with me thank you thank you thank you where can we find you online um on social media instagram i am at alexis jones and alexisjones.com thank you again at home thanks for listening to our podcast for more pregnancy and parenting information and media visit us online at informedpregnancy.com <laughs>